I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. We gonna change the system. Think about it. Right now. And that's the way it was. That's the way it is. And it's always changing and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. The world is listening. My guest is Allison Jones Webb. She's a passionate advocate for people in recovery from addictions. She's written extensively about issues related to recovery from addiction and harm reduction. She is a certified prevention specialist, trained recovery coach recovery ambassador with Faces and Voices of Recovery, which is the nation's leading recovery advocacy organization, and a member of the Virginia Recovery Advocacy Project, which is a part of the National Recovery Advocacy Project's network of grassroots activists. She's president of the Maine Association of Recovery Residences and an active volunteer in numerous other recovery-related efforts. Allison also has more than 20 years of experience in policy development, advocacy, nonprofit strategic planning, community outreach and organizing, and linking community members with healthcare. And she's the author of this new book that we'll be talking about, Recovery Allies, How to Support Addiction Recovery and Build Recovery-Friendly Communities. Allison, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Probably the main reason why I decided to take on this interview is because I greatly appreciated your approach to this topic. 
that you went way beyond the bounds that most people do when talking about addiction and recovery. And to me, that was very interesting. So I really appreciated this book and how broad your perspective of things are. And I think that's really valuable to share with people. So I'm looking forward to this conversation as well. Well, thank you. And, you know, I'll say that broad perspective really emerges from the recovery community, which is so broad and varied and always interesting. And so, you know, the book really is a reflection of the recovery community, or at least that's my hope that it is. So how did you become interested in this topic to the point that you have literally dedicated your life to this work? Well, that is such a great question. Um, And sometimes I am surprised when I look back and realize it's been, you know, a good 20 years that I've been learning and focusing on this. I come from a family like millions and millions of Americans. I come from a family where there is substance use disorder. And so I'll use that technical term, substance use disorder, from time to time. And I'll also use the word addiction. And in my family, the substance use disorder manifests both in sort of mild formats where people have drinking problems, but they've got their lives on track all the way through to severe substance use disorder, which is what we think of, we usually call addiction, addiction where people's lives have kind of gone off the tracks and where the harm that their addiction has caused has been pretty significant. And in my family, all up and down the generation, so my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation, my own generation, my children's generation, there is that presence of substance use disorder of one form or or another. And growing up, there was never any discussion about this. And so, you know, coming from a family where there's substance use disorder on both sides, both my mom's side and my dad's side, to have something that can so significantly, you know, change a family's dynamics, change an individual's outcomes, and really change the way we're able to care about each other intergenerationally. To have that not discussed to me now, looking back, is pretty amazing, you know, that there was just no discussion about it. And so I think, you know, sort of in the high school years, there were little hints of, oh, so-and-so was a drunk, or oh, so-and-so is just a junkie. And those words are pretty hurtful words. And I, again, didn't really understand what that was. And so if you sort of fast forward, then, you know, I go off, I go to college, I get married, I have a, you know, I have children, and I start my career in public health, which is something that I'm passionate about generally, just sort of living a healthy lifestyle. And I found myself in a public health job where we were addressing the problem of addiction in our communities from a prevention point of view. So trying to get kids not to start using, in this case, particularly alcohol and tobacco. And as I started doing that work, I got so curious about all the research that's been done on addiction and prevention and harm reduction. And so I I learned number one, oh, so I guess that's what was going on in my family that no one was talking about in my extended family. But I also became just so intrigued by the research that's gone on. Some of it, I think, sort of in the wrong direction, but always interesting. Recovery in particular is a topic that is just endlessly interesting because 
it really means people living the life that they want. And when you delve into that question, you get to ask yourself as well, am I living the life that I want to live? And so that's a very long answer to your question. I mean, the, the short answer is I came from a family like so many other people where there was substance use disorder and was just never talked about. And as I started doing the work in public health, I started getting answers to those questions that I had, you know, back then in high school. Well, I want to encourage you to give long answers. (laughs) (laughs) I want us to go deep into this. Mm -hmm. So don't be shy about doing that. Okay. So let's talk about the way our society and media see and portray people with addiction and substance use disorders. And you say in the book that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, that it's actually connection, and that we as a society have a fundamental misunderstanding of addiction and substance use and and the people who are caught up in it. So talk about the way our society and media see all of this and portray this because it has such a profound effect upon our society and consequently upon all of us. So this will definitely be a long answer. So one thing that we do in this country is we medicalize so many life conditions and addiction is right up at the top of the list of things that we turn into a medical condition. And there's a good side to that, which is that for many people who have addictions, there's help available in the healthcare community for the physical aspects of addiction. And that's especially true for opioid use disorder. We have some medications, we have methadone and we have buprenorphine, otherwise known as Suboxone, that can help people with those addictions. But when we medicalize it and we have a diagnosis now, oh, John has substance use disorder, We turn the solution to that problem into a medical solution, which is, I guess we need a pill for John. And that is something that has developed in the last probably 20 years or so with the development of a firm diagnosis that a clinician can provide, and then also with the development of these medications. And those medications are extremely important, and that medical diagnosis is extremely important for getting help. And certainly, if you have an alcohol use disorder, very important for getting the type of treatment that you need. But that sort of way of looking at addiction is hopelessly incomplete. And one of the things that we have done that I see anyway, you know, particularly family members who get frustrated with, you know, a son or a father who's got an addiction, a mother, is that oh, it's a substance use disorder. Oh, it's a disease. Let's turn that over to the healthcare providers and that will fix it. And, you know, what we do know about addiction is that it's all encompassing. It's not just physical. And so that's one area where we fall down socially when we create this medical condition that's supposed to have a medical solution. Another thing that happens, particularly in the media, And we've all seen, you know, those media portrayals of addiction as people who can't get their act together, they're in the back alleys, they're under the bridges, or they're down in the basement, or they're stealing from their grandma, they're lying, they're bad people, and they're doing bad things. 
And while many of those things may be true, people with addictions may be homeless, people with addictions may be sort of relegated to the basement because they don't have another way of living yet. What that does for those of us who are not living with addiction is it makes it pretty easy to look down on people with addiction, and it also makes it very difficult for people with addictions to get better if they want to. And so that, again, that portrayal of mostly homeless is usually what we see, people just living pretty scrappy lives. First of all, it's not true, but secondly, it influences the way that we think about maybe somebody in our family who has a drug use problem. So if you combine those two things, that medicalization and how we're seeing people as hopelessly bad and homeless, somehow, you know, we put those two together and we think, well, there must be like a quick fix, right? Just give them, just give them a pill and they should get better. When what we're really not considering is all of those other things around a person's lives, their home, their relationships, their self-esteem, their mental health, all of those things are part of their being that is also part of their addiction. So I do have an example, which is kind of interesting in terms of how we have internalized this media image of people with addiction. And I'll use this sort of person living under the bridge as a a catch-all for that view we have of people with addiction as out of control, bad people living on the streets. So I was in a training. This was probably, oh my goodness, 10 years ago, maybe. I was in a training and there was a young man in recovery who was telling us, he was, the training was on how can we talk about addiction and how can we talk about recovery? Like, how do we tell our stories? And most of the people there were young and early in their own recoveries. And then we had brought a group of women over from the jail to also take this training so that they could participate, they could learn. And the man who was providing the training was a young white man wearing a suit. And he he started the training off by saying, you know, most of us think of addiction as, you know, that guy that's living, you know, next to a trash can underneath a bridge and, you know, just can't get his life together, you know, and it's just a bad person. And I'm here to tell you that, you know, I'm a person in recovery and that was not my story and, you know, that our image of addiction is all wrong. And this person had an addiction to painkillers. He was never homeless. He was never on the streets. His life never spun out of control that way. So he was saying that as a way of changing our view of addiction. But what that did for me, and I confronted him about it, so members of my family are that guy under the bridge. (laughs) And so what you're saying is that you want us to think that that guy under the bridge, like that's, that's still bad, but your path to addiction and then into recovery was somehow better. And, you know, fast forward, I do know that that training and that trainer changed. I don't know if it's because of what I said or not, but, you know, we, we strip the person of their humanity when we just look at the circumstances around them. And that's what was happening in that training was that my relative was being stripped of his humanity. So I say that just to reinforce how the media portray addiction in this horribly negative way. And, you know, I, I think The rest of sort of the addiction story beyond the way the media portray it 
So addiction happens in all of our families, in all of our homes. People who are teachers have addictions. People who are healthcare providers have addictions. And when we normalize it that way, as opposed to somehow finding this other person who's really bad and really horrible and really not trustworthy, when we normalize it, we begin to understand that it is a human condition. It is a response sometimes to trauma. It's a response sometimes to emotional pain. It's a response to stress. It's a way that some of us deal with just living life. And so when we go back to that quote, so that Johan Hari quote, that the opposite of addiction is connection, we can start to think more about people in addiction and in recovery as just like us right? We are all, we are all that person. Yeah, that was one of the things, one of the many things that struck me while reading this is that we all have some kind of substance use disorders to some degree, and many of us have addictions to things that aren't necessarily considered, you know, pathologized the way alcohol and hard drugs are. Could you talk about some of the different kinds of addictions and substance abuse disorders that that largely go under the radar and yet do actually affect such a a large percentage of us, if not all of us? (laughs) Exactly. So there is this phrase in the recovery community, you know, we're all in recovery from something. And there's truth in that, in that we have all had some very difficult point in our lives. We've all experienced some type of pain. We've all needed to heal from something. That's just life. And so that expression, again, sort of makes recovery and addiction. It's a we thing. It's not a they thing. I am not an expert at all in what are called process addictions. So people who who are compulsive about eating or gambling or other types of behaviors. I really don't know a whole lot about that. I do know that very often those behaviors, for lack of a better word, often go hand in hand with substance use. And so there is, you know, if we look at that medical model, there is this part of the brain that is seeking reward. And sometimes that can be through eating or controlled eating or exercise or excessive exercise work you know, is of course a problem uh, for some people who just can't put down the computer, can't put down their work and focus, for example, on healthy relationships. So that way of thinking about, you know, compulsive behavior that solves some kind of problem that we have, it solves a problem of avoiding our relationships, maybe avoiding internal pain, maybe avoiding boredom, those behaviors all can become out of control. And then they start to dominate our lives. And they also start to inflict some, you know, difficulties on people around us. And so that is one of the areas of substance use, this sort of inflicting consequences on other people that is really important to think about. And so if we step away from the term addiction, right, because that, again, is that severe substance use disorder, where you're using compulsively and your life is off the rails. But if we start thinking about substance use and the consequences it has on other people, you don't have to have an out-and-out addiction to create consequences for others. And what comes to mind, for example, is binge drinking. So that is, you know, prevalent in our culture. 
and very much accepted, particularly among young people. It's kind of a thing you do, blackout drinking. And there can be consequences for others that are disastrous. For example, if you have children at home and you are binge drinking, or if you get in a car and you have been blackout drinking. And so those consequences are as important, I would say, to all of us as what happens to the individual. And yet, we tend to focus our conversation about addiction on what's happening to the individual. So any substance can kind of play that role in a person's life. The use of that substance creating consequences could be extreme consequences or not. So smoking cannabis, you kind of just forget about what your responsibilities are. You don't show up where you said you were going to show up. And, you know, using, for example, stimulants, you could use your kids Ritalin or you could be smoking meth. And really just like lose track of what you're supposed to be doing, where you're supposed to be. And those are all consequences that harm other people, but we're not talking about chaotic use or addiction in those situations. We're talking about people who are using substances maybe to get by during the day. Also, you know, let's be frank, like people use substances because they feel better when they use them. There's a good reason for using them in some instances. It's just that when the consequences barrel out of control for other people, that it's a we thing, then it's not just a them thing. And timing plays a big role in how that unfolds in people's lives. Like you can have really good timing or you can have really bad timing. Or some people use the term luck. Like if you happen to do a particular thing at the wrong moment, it can destroy your life. Whereas many people will engage in the same behavior or have the same experience, but it happens at a moment when there are no consequences. And so that's something that I've reflected on considerably in recent years as I see things happening in people's lives and the consequences that many people are facing as a result of things that they've done and realizing that, wow, that could have happened to me and that could have happened to everybody I know if it happened to have happened at the wrong moment. Very definitely. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, that's that's the case for all of the good things and the bad things that we do or, you know, attempt to do. Sometimes we're rewarded and sometimes not. I guess I would say a couple of things about that. One is that the social environment in which we use drugs and alcohol is critical to consequences. And some of us, by dint of our upbringing, get luckier than others. And by that, I mean, If you're in a family where, and in a community where your drug use and alcohol use started later, so not at the age of 12 or 14 or 16 or 18, but maybe 20, there's a very, very clear connection between what we call the age of onset, so when you first started using any substance, the age of onset, and the consequences later in life. And so starting earlier can very often mean that by the time you're 25, your use looks pretty different than someone who started using at 20 and you know hasn't had those years of using and years of taking a different path than you know with drug and alcohol use. The other thing that I'll say is it may be luck, but it may be also our social construct of people who have consequences from substance use disorder from their substance use. You know, if you are white, you're less likely to be arrested, for example for possession of any substance, but in particular possession of cannabis. And so, you know, that's kind of luck of the draw, maybe, but it's also our social construct about the way we think about race and ethnicity, that 
there are people and the people, you know, in the black and brown community tell me all the time, like, Allison, you can't talk about substance use without talking about these disparities. They're both health disparities, but also inequities in our criminal justice system. And so, yeah, so you could be that guy that got arrested. It could have happened to you, but the chances are pretty good that if you are white, it won't be you. It'll be somebody else. But then also to your point, you know, we all use substances somehow or other in one way or another, but we don't all have consequences that are dire. Very definitely the case. And another substance that occurred to me that we often don't talk about is our attachment or addiction to certain people that can bring up powerful emotions and destructive behavior like jealousy and manipulative and violent behavior. So this is something that's also discussed in the recovery community. And I think people who are in recovery from substances are aware, very much aware themselves of those possibilities in a way that outside of the recovery community might not occur to us until it happens. And so, you know, being in recovery, you're pretty aware of what happens when you're using compulsively or, you know, when you're looking for a feeling that you decide you're going to get in drugs or alcohol, that that same compulsive attraction or, you know, use, I don't want to say use in a context of a relationship, but that feeling that you get in a relationship that's not healthy, but you're still, you're still doing it is very definitely a part of the landscape. And, you know, I don't really know very much about recovery from unhealthy relationships that way, but I do imagine that some of the pieces of sort of pulling apart, okay, why did I do that? What would I do differently now in a similar circumstance? What are my emotions? What are my feelings? Why is this going on? My sense is that those steps to healing and recovery would probably be similar to the ones that you would have in recovery from a, you know, from a substance. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the conditions that exist in our society that lend themselves to the kind of emotional and psychological causes of addiction and substance use. You mentioned that many people use substances to make them feel better. Talk about the kind of complex social ecosystem that we exist in that actually creates an environment that doesn't feel good for many of us. And for some of us who are more sensitive, perhaps it's just too much to bear without some kind of help. And often many people don't have the kind of help that would be most satisfying, like healthy connections with other people who are you know, relatively sane and stable. And so they are left to fend for themselves on the street, so to speak. So those are just such important points. And, you know, my heart breaks when I hear you talk about, you know, sensitive people who are just really, in some ways, sometimes people feel like they're thrown to the wolves in our society, which is in some ways you know, a society that has really stripped us of hope in some ways and in some situations. So I'll come back to that aspect. But what I do want, I don't want to forget to say, so there's a recovery researcher who's named John Kelly. He's leading in the field. And he says, you know, people use substances for four reasons, and then they get better for four reasons. So one is they start using so they can feel better, and then they feel good. Then they do it to feel better, 
than they do it to do better, right? So they're progressively feeling better and doing better. And then it's because other people are doing it. And when they stop using or decide they want to get into recovery, the reasons are the same because they want to feel good. Okay. If you've been using for a long time, you're not feeling good. They want to feel better. They want to do better. And then they find a community around them of people who are doing it as well. And so to me, you know, that's a super simple way of pointing out, you know, we don't feel good in this culture. Many of us don't feel good and we want to feel better. And there are substances that can help us do that. And it works to a certain degree. And very often when you're feeling better, you're able to do better. And because we're in this culture where performance is so important, right? What you do is a marker of how good a person you are. So you're doing better. So you keep doing it. And then all of a sudden you're around people who are doing it as well. So you've got yourself a community and you've got some connection. And that and then so you sort of reverse that process and when you start thinking about recovery well okay you're not feeling so well now because you're using substances a lot and you're not doing too well because the substances are going to take over may or may not take over your life and then you find a recovery community or you find a community of people that are like-minded doesn't have to be the recovery community of other people who are doing it and you find connection in a different way so what's happening there is that people who don't have a connection, get a connection. And I am so dismayed, so terribly dismayed when I hear in particular about young people, but it's not just young people who feel lost, right? In our culture where if you're not, you know, you're not a good student or if you're not a good worker or a good mom or a good whatever, you know, if you're not achieving and performing, there's not a place for you. And that place for you is the place where we find connection. And so, you know, there have been sociologists who've written more broadly about this, you know, talking about that as alienation. And I firmly agree with that approach to addiction, which is that we are disconnected in this culture. And certainly our computers don't help that. You know, we all know that sort of social media explanation, but it's bigger than that. We aren't learning as a culture to take care of each other and to reach out. And we are learning how to take care of ourselves. Like I know how to take care of myself. I know what my, you know, self-care is and what my wellness is, but that's really actually contributing to the problem of isolation and people not feeling a connection and being alienated from one another. And you're absolutely right that there are, you know, so the, so there's the characteristic of the individual, which is what you hit on, which is some people are just very sensitive to this world of alienation and world of performance and stress. And their ability to manage that is sometimes made easier by substances. And so there's this sort of the characteristic of the individual, which you pointed out. And then there's the characteristics of the culture where we live. And the combination for some people can just be very, I don't want to say deadly, although that is true, but the combination can be very harmful with dire consequences. And you brought up social media. And it appears to me that the vast majority of our culture is very quickly becoming or has already become completely addicted to social media. And we haven't yet fully realized the full unfolding consequences of that yet. So you're spot on. So I'm in my 60s and I did not grow up with social media, obviously. And I try to minimize my use of it now. 
And I have a very hard time imagining what it's like to be a young person, a 10-year-old now, or a 12-year-old, or a 15-year-old, with the social media reality as it is now. I cannot imagine the challenges to learning how to be grounded as an individual in that environment. So by grounded, I mean a person who you know, you know your own values or you're learning, you're young, you're learning your own values and you're learning how to form relationships and you have relationships that are meaningful and you have meaningful activities, things that you do in your day-to-day life. I just have such a hard time imagining what that's like today where our reality, as you said, our reality is social media. It's not that it's like a a description of reality. It is reality for many young people, many people, period. And I, you know, again, I'm not an expert in that field. It's actually something I may think about writing about in the future, because I just wonder, like, where is that going? And if you look at the social consequences of that on different social groups, so how does that affect people living in rural areas or people living in urban areas or people who have high enough incomes where they can take a long vacation and get away from it all? Does that even matter? Those are questions that we will be looking at going forward and then learning as we go along, probably learning from both good experiences and bad experiences about what is happening with kids that are coming up in that age, in that era. So I'm always hopeful, always, always hopeful. And, you know, I think that that is just going to be one of the major challenges for all of us, but in particular, young kids coming through now to learn to have a life that's full and that's grounded and that doesn't need external stimulation for satisfaction. So in the book, you write that most people actually recover from substance use disorders on their own naturally without any outer intervention, but that this book, Recovery Allies, is actually addressing those people who really do need help, who suffer from addiction or severe substance use disorder. So let's talk about what those people need, or these people, to not other them, and then we can start getting into the issue of creating communities, supportive communities, and how to engage people in that way. So I'll go from the the large to the small to sort of frame the conversation. So the majority of people who have a substance use disorder, so that's going to be mild, moderate, or severe, and that ranges from somebody who binge drinks to someone who has a full-fledged addiction. Okay, that's our full spectrum of substance use disorder. Of those, full spectrum, about six out of 10 are self-healers. They get better on their own. And For the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, those self-healers are people who have a less severe problem. And so probably aren't homeless, probably haven't lost their jobs. You know, they've got a fair amount of what we call recovery capital. They've got a fair amount of support and assets in their lives. And so their need for treatment or other supports is less. And very often those folks will, you know, they'll recover on their own, meaning they'll read books Very often people will go to church or find help in meditation and just not even necessarily in the recovery community. And so they're somewhat invisible to us. So that's six out of 10, give or take. And then there's another two out of those 10 that have a more, typically have a more severe problem. They're going to need some help. And that help is 
perhaps a type of treatment, but I'm not talking about residential treatment. So often when we talk about substance use disorder and somebody says they need to go to treatment, what that means is residential treatment for 30 days, which is the only reason it's 30 days is because that's what insurance companies pay for. But those two out of 10, they'll need some help, probably some counseling, some type of treatment, but not residential treatment. And one of our challenges in this country is that for people who are seeking treatment, counseling, whatever treatment, very often they're all just tossed into rehab, into residential treatment when that's actually not what they need. And so finding the right treatment at the right time and right treatment means the right modality, but also by a trained clinician or spiritual healer you know, whatever that is going to be most helpful, the right treatment at the right time for those. Now we've got two out of 10. So now we got another, give or take two out of 10 people who are in that area of severe substance use disorder, and we'll call it addiction. And for many of those people, but not all, residential treatment is helpful. And that in residential treatment, people will, first of all, have an opportunity to stabilize, physically stabilize, substances leave the system. They may get some medical care. And, you know, so they're able to sort of clear their bodies and their brains so that their minds then are able to think more clearly about how to get better. 30 days very often isn't long enough, but that's, again, as I said earlier, that's what insurance companies pay for. And this is a juncture for families that can be so incredibly challenging because there aren't a lot of residential treatment facilities, particularly in rural areas. Sometimes people need to go out of state. Sometimes insurance doesn't cover it. It's very expensive. You probably know, I certainly know families who have drained their retirement savings. They've remortgaged their homes in order to provide treatment to someone that they love. And the problem with that is, first of all, we should not have to go broke getting treatment for the people that we love. But secondly, it's not always effective. And there's nothing wrong with a person who didn't like somehow get fixed when we sent them to treatment. It may be that their needs were different. It also may be that this is one of two or three or four attempts or, you know, stints or whatever you want to call it at treatment. And so One of the things that is frustrating for family members, you know, even if they acknowledge, okay, we know, like, you don't just send them away and they get fixed. But one of the things that is so frustrating is, yeah, sometimes it takes a couple of attempts. Each time a person is learning, and even when a person starts using again after coming out of treatment, they are learning during that process of using again trying to figure out, okay, so what is it that I need to get better? And another issue that comes up in those treatment facilities is that many of them do not provide medications for addiction. So many of them do not provide, as I mentioned earlier, methadone or suboxone. Those are the two medications that we have for opioid use disorder. And treatment facilities, residential treatment facilities, do not provide those in the United States, many of them. And so a person who has an opioid use disorder is moving into an environment that was originally created for people with alcohol use disorder. And the focus is on abstinence, which can be effective for people with opioid use disorder, but it can also be very, very dangerous and puts a person at risk for overdose after leaving the facility. So, you know, if you're asking, okay, so what do people with an addiction need? So there is that treatment and it is helpful for many people. And it's really important to remember that it's not always a one and done and it is not a fix. It is not that at all. It is a place for stabilization and it's a place to learn. And then leaving treatment, very often people, you know, they may not want to go home. 
They may not want to go back to the environment that they were using in in the first place. And so they need a place to go that can look different for different people. But one type of support that's available in some communities is recovery housing. So recovery housing are housing that is usually run by an individual in recovery himself or herself, a living environment with other individuals in recovery, where if it's a good recovery residence, there's sort of structure around a person's day, there's accountability to the people that you're living with, and there are if not flat out requirements, then certainly encouragement to either volunteer or get a job or go back to school, but sort of get engaged right away in the community for things that you want to do. And so that if you were in treatment, you know, treatment is that place where you focus on yourself and you focus on your health, your mental health, your spiritual health, your physical health. But when you leave, it's not just about you anymore, you know, and you need to, you need, one needs to, one does start thinking about the community. And that's where community members have so much to give and so much to contribute. So I mentioned volunteer opportunities. There are a lot of nonprofits that connect with recovery houses. It's not just recovery housing, but individuals in recovery to provide, you know, you can work for a soup kitchen, work for a humane society. I know a lot of people in recovery who started walking dogs and that was incredibly important to them, that connection with an animal. We all know we love our dogs. We love our cats. We love our pets. That that's an opportunity for connection, but it's also an opportunity to like get outside of yourself, start thinking about other people at the organization. People who may have interrupted their education or who may want to just start their education very often in those early weeks and months of recovery are going to start looking at going back to school, getting a GED, going to community college, whatever is possible. And usually, you know, small steps are pretty helpful as opposed to, you know, going whole hog and going to, going to school full time right away. And in the community and in the family, you know, finding a way to support somebody who wants to go back to school, like, well, what would that look like? And what do you think you're interested in? And can I go with you to that interview at the community college? Because I want to learn more about it, too. And if you're at the community college as an administrator or as a professor or any college, but as an administrator or professor, being that person that is curious and inclusive about an individual who's in recovery. So, wow, we're so glad you're here, and it's really going to be interesting to have you in class. I, you know, We really value your perspective, if you want to talk about it. What are the things that are interesting to you that we could offer you here at this school? So those are areas where community members are really important. You know, a person doesn't just, like, get out of treatment, go to a living situation, and start going to school on his own. Doesn't happen that way. And, you know, thinking either right away or further down the line in terms of getting work, Employers are incredibly important in supporting people in recovery. So early recovery or late recovery. You know, we do live in this society where we have to work if we're going to live <laughs> for the most part. And work for many, many of us gives us meaning. And so, you know, you may be in early recovery and have to get a job because you have to make money because you need to live. But you may also be thinking more about your work life as a place that you want to take on some passions, take on some challenges, find some meaning. And in the community, we can be so incredibly helpful here. So in, in our families, you know, talking about, well, okay, so you need to get a job. We can help you find something if you want our help or not, just to kind of get you going. But let's think more long term. Where do you think you want to be a year from now or two years or five years? What would set you up for a work life that would be meaningful for you? 
And for employers, there's so many things that employers can do to support that individual in recovery and support family members. So for employers who feel like they can, you know, do some training on their own staff about recovery and addiction so that their workforce is knowledgeable about the topic, not about this person, but just about the topic. I guarantee you, if an employer starts doing that type of, you know, education and awareness raising among the staff, there's somebody on that staff who's in recovery already, guarantee it, or a family member. And so opening up conversations that make it a safe place to talk about recovery and then making sure as an employer that your benefits package allows for people to go to treatment if they need it, treatment or counseling or whatever support services a person needs. You know, the work site is a place where we spend so much time. And so creating an environment that is inclusive and supportive and not stigmatizing, not using stigmatizing language, not, you know, whispering behind somebody's back when they have to go take a trip to Pennsylvania to pick up their son from patient rehab. Those types of things are really important because, again, the workplace is where we spend so much of our time. And then, you know, in the community, and this is really dependent on the type of community that you come from. So in some communities, a person who's been living with addiction, who enters recovery, finds the faith community just a very important part of their recovery. And sometimes people whose recovery path is faith-based, they don't actually think about themselves in recovery. They don't use that phrase in recovery, but they find sustenance and they find healing maybe at their church, maybe at their synagogue, maybe in their Buddhist meditation. And that varies by community. In some communities, there's a very secular path to recovery. It's all good. In the community, it's, you know, it's kind of our job to understand, well, where we live, the church isn't all that important, but maybe, you know, it's really important. What we do together that we would like to invite people in recovery to do is, you know, we take community hikes or something, whatever the connector is there in your community. So those are the things, you know, looking further out from leaving treatment per se. Those are the things where people in recovery are seeking to reintegrate into the community. They're seeking to become full-fledged citizens again. They're seeking meaning. And, you know, one thing that I didn't mention yet is sometimes they're seeking connection with their family. They may have lost custody of their children. And so that's an area where, again, as a community, we can be so supportive of them as parents, if that's the situation where they may need some help getting their kids back or may need help with supervised visits or you know, figuring out activities for kids when you're early in recovery and you just don't know all this stuff or you've forgotten about it. Those are all things that community members can do to be supportive of people in early recovery. And in addition to the obvious importance for the health and well-being of people who are in recovery, could you talk about the importance of bringing these people back into our society in a belonging way for the overall benefit of the community and society itself and the importance for all of us to really understand that. Yeah. So from a purely practical point of view, it's very clear that when people enter recovery at any age and they start healing, and as I mentioned, you know, they're looking for meaning, often looking for work, they become part of the workforce. And and again, I'm saying this is just purely practical. They become part of the workforce And there is research that shows that, in fact, they become more loyal workers. There's less absenteeism among people who are in recovery than the general workforce. They stay longer. And so they become a really important part of the workforce. 
And so that's practical and that's important. But beyond that, you know, they come back into our lives and into our families as, I don't know how else to say this other than to say, you know, you get your brother back, you get your sister back, you get your mom back, you get your dad back. And, you know, we all come from imperfect families. And for some people, you know, there isn't a family to go back to, but we get that person back as somebody that we care about and as somebody that, you know, shows us in very poignant ways sometimes what it's like to come back from something that's pretty awful. And that's inspirational, at least for me, very inspirational to see that happen often in such a very visible way. And so we gain connections with the people that have left. And maybe they didn't physically leave. Maybe they were still, you know, living in our communities, but they were not engaged. And we get them back and it makes us all richer. Maybe that's our faith community. Maybe it's our neighborhood. Maybe it's our work site. Maybe it's our town. Maybe, you know, it's a different definition of community, but we gain connection with them, which is enriching for everyone. So the recovery process can be very different for everybody. People have different circumstances and different needs. And in our culture, I think most people are mainly just aware of programs like AA or other 12-step programs for other kinds of substance use disorder. Could you talk about how 12-step programs don't actually work for some people and why that is? And also, you know, they're very abstinence-oriented, and abstinence doesn't necessarily work for everyone. I remember reading years ago that in Europe, they have a very, very different perspective on alcoholism and substance abuse disorders than we do with our typical 12-step program kind of philosophy. So that is a very interesting question. And the answers, there are many answers to that question. And so I hope I can do it justice. So there are many people who say, and truthfully, that their lives have been saved through 12 steps. And so it would be a disservice to them to say, well, 12 step just doesn't work. It's bad because that's not true. And there is some evidence, there was a review of the evidence done recently that does show that people who attend 12 step programs, for many of them, they gain a new network of people who are in sobriety. And I will say in sobriety, because as you mentioned, 12-step is an abstinence-only program. And so following that path, people are typically abstinent. And so there is evidence that shows that they gain a new network of people in sobriety that's incredibly important. And they learn sort of the tricks of the trade from those people and that that's a very helpful part of their own recovery. For others, the 12 steps are harmful. And I think there's just no other way to say it than, you know, for some people, those steps which are at their core originally based on religious, you know, Christian religious steps, that those are harmful and the pathway that requires abstinence is harmful. And so I feel like I really want to do justice to the people who have benefited tremendously from 12 step and from people who have not. So the 12 steps, you know, essentially 
I don't want to say require, but encourage participants to turn their problem over to a higher power and that that higher power then is a guide for them in maintaining sobriety. And so every day you wake up, you may have a meditation period or you may have a call with a sponsor, the person that helps you out, that leads the way in what these 12 steps are period of meditation, you think about your day, what's going to happen that day, and you really reflect, um, what am I going to do today to maintain my sobriety? Very often for people in 12-step, that includes helping others. And so another really important aspect of 12-step is this volunteer aspect of helping the other person, helping the newcomer who's struggling. And so there's this whole world that has developed around the 12 steps that for some people is very helpful. And it has also become the cornerstone of recovery in residential treatment facilities in the United States. And so even if you have an opioid use disorder and medication may be the first thing that you need so that you don't die, those residential programs, many of them do not offer that medication. They are very definitely abstinence only. And that can be very, very harmful for people. So we have this system in the United States that's been based on 12-step, in part because there wasn't anything else. And in part, you know, 12-step is free. It's available everywhere. It's available around the clock now with meetings available online. And so it is the cornerstone of our recovery in this country. And as I mentioned earlier, it is based on a particular religious community. It's kind of an evolution of that religious community. And so there is this element of sort of confession, confess what you did and seek a higher power. And then there's an element of redemption. And so the stories that you hear people tell in the 12-step meetings are very much stories of redemption. And that's what shows up in many of our recovery narratives. People have learned to tell this narrative of my life was very bad. Then this is what happened. And typically what happened is I, you know, I I had a moment where I understood I needed help and I sought out help in the 12 steps. And this is what my life is like now. So that's the traditional narrative. I don't know a whole lot about recovery in Europe, but I do know that the 12-step programs, there just aren't that many. I spent some time in Germany a couple of years ago, and I think there was like one NA meeting in the town that I was living in. I didn't find any AA meetings. It just clearly is not a part of the recovery landscape there. And I think that that may be in part because there's a very different religious tradition, and I think that's true for all of Europe. And It may also be because this, you know, sort of confession, repentance, and then, you know, a better life, that narrative just doesn't resonate. And it may also be that the social net, I don't want to say social, but healthcare and social service network is much more robust in Europe. And so for people that have problems, that's where they turn as opposed to this huge network that's free in the United States through AA and then some of the other 12-step fellowships. So what is harmful about AA for some people is this narrative of things were really bad. Then, you know, I learned about AA and I came and I got this help and my life was redeemed and it got better. So there's two places where things don't work out too well. One, for people who have severe trauma in their past where just some really bad things have happened to them. AA is not a place to process your trauma. That's not what it was ever intended to be, and it's not where people talk about trauma for the most part. And so if you're really struggling with something that happened in your past and you really need to process it and talk about it, what people find is that AA is just not the place to do that. And 
it's not to say that you can't get help with your drinking or your drug use that may be a part of the result of your trauma, but processing that trauma and understanding it, it's not going to happen in AA or in other 12-step programs. You can get help elsewhere and come to the 12 steps trying to address your substance use. And that can work. That can definitely work. There are certainly people who have gone through the 12-step programs who have extreme trauma, and the 12 steps are very helpful for them. The other area where it may not work so well, on that other side of the narrative where, okay, so beyond redemption, you know, things got better. For some people who are living in recovery, their life really sucks. And they might not be using substances, but it's not like everything got good again and they got their kids back and they got a good job and now they are living the American dream. That doesn't happen. And so, you know, maybe that's your expectation. And so you feel let down by the 12 steps, but maybe you also understand that is just not what it's going to look like for me. And so that narrative of redemption and then everything got good is the wrong narrative. It doesn't help me. What helps me more, maybe it could be, you know, counseling to understand what's going on. A lot of people find help in meditation that has nothing to do with the 12 steps, nothing to do with faith. And so those are some areas where the 12 steps just don't work. You know, they kind of hit roadblocks. I will say two other things. One is that many people, you know, find the 12 steps helpful at a certain point in their recovery and then move on. Or maybe they move on and then they come back. And so people definitely sort of come and go when they feel like that might be a helpful part of their recovery. The other thing that's really important to talk about is that because of the drug supply that we have now with a high amount of opioid in it, usually fentanyl, but others as well, because of the drug supply that we have now, for someone who is abstinent, and that is the 12-step path, so if you're abstinent for any period of time, and then you use those opioids again, if that was the drug that you were using before and you use it again, there's a pretty good chance that you will overdose and possibly die. And that has definitely happened. And so for people who have lost loved ones because of that abstinent approach, and in some ways, not necessarily just approach, but demand, you know, some 12-step meetings are very rigid in the demand for abstinence. And, you know, when you have a loved one who followed that and dies as a result of a drug overdose, it's devastating that you thought that that's what was going to help them because that's what you've been told and that's what you've heard. And it turns out that that's not the case. And so those are some of the reasons, you know, the 12-step program can be problematic for some people for sure and harmful, outright harmful. And also talk about what the journey of recovery looks like realistically and the stages of recovery that people can go through so that you know potential allies can better understand what to expect and the challenges they may encounter along the way. Oh wow, what a great question. And I think, you know, thank you for bringing up what we can expect as allies because, you know, there is this notion, totally misguided notion that well, if they just go to treatment or if they just like take, you know, suboxone, they'll get better. There's not a magic bullet here at all. And so recovery really is a process of healing the brain, healing the body, healing the soul. And then developing wherever you can, like whatever you can, the life that you want with whatever limitations you have. And so let's say in the first year or so of recovery, you know, there's a stabilization that goes on and and a lot of it is physical. So if you have been using alcohol, 
which really beats up your body. Or if you've been using other drugs, you know, your body takes some time to heal. And there can be all kinds of things that happen during that period. And I'll say a year, but you know, it's different for everyone. But let's say it's a year of, you know, clearing your liver of clearing up infections that you might have had, of going to the dentist because you haven't been there for 10 years, of, you know, getting a regular primary care doctor to take a look and see, okay, what's going on and what do we want to deal with first? That's in that first year. And if you've ignored your body for any reason, forget the drugs or alcohol, we all do that from time to time, you know that it takes a while to kind of become physically robust after that. And you'll find along that way, there may be some health issues that are serious that need to be addressed. And then, you know, you get into the next two or three years of recovery where you're starting to stabilize other parts of your life. So you get your housing, maybe you're able to get an apartment, maybe you're able to start school again, you know, you're starting to put together your social life and become more integrated wherever it is that you're living. And so maybe you come back home to where you were before. Maybe you decide that actually is not a safe place for me to be and you live someplace else. Then you have new friends you need to make, find new circles, find things that you want to be doing to fill your time. And I will say that during that, you know, one to two to three years, finding something to do with your time, people in recovery just tell me, it's like when you spend all of your time like looking for drugs and doing drugs and being high and then looking for them again, you got a lot of time on your hands in those early weeks and months and even years of recovery. And so helping with that aspect of, you know, hey, we're going to go out for burritos tonight for dinner. Would you like to come with us? You know, is super helpful just in normalizing what it means to integrate back into your social life. And again, as I said, in that period when you're starting back in school or starting a job or trying to figure out where you're going to fit in. And then, I don't know, let's say, you know, four or five years in, it may be time for a person to delve into some of the problems that were created during use that she wants to make better. And this doesn't, you know, this isn't like you can't count on this. Everybody's different. But, you know, there may be a period when somebody's like, you know, I am so sorry for what I did when I was X, Y, or Z. And so the closer relationships begin to stabilize later on. And I think that's really hard for family members to understand because they want it fixed right away. They want it to go back to the way it was before, whatever that means. And in fact, it's never going to go back to the way it was before. It's going to be different. And you know, giving the relationship with your son or your daughter, or your spouse or your grandchild, giving it time, giving them time to heal and become the person they more want to be and sort of creating that relationship, you know, is super important and it may take longer than you want. And then after that, there's this period people in long-term recovery talk about as just being such a period of joy, five, six, seven years out, where, you know, now they're able to think about like what they love, what they're passionate about. They're able to think about goals, you know, in a way that, you know, thinking about a goal when you're a year in recovery is like, you're probably thinking pretty short term, but later on, you're able to have a broader perspective on your own life and on life generally. And people use the term fulfillment for that period of recovery where, you know, they find joy in life in a way that they were not able to for a long time. And I say all of that, with the caveat that, you know, it doesn't happen for everybody that way. And it doesn't happen that everybody reaches joy and fulfillment. You know, it would be great if it happened that way. And it would be great for all of us if we all had that period of joy and fulfillment. But it doesn't always happen that way. And life circumstances are sometimes, you know, challenging and too hard. So 
acknowledging that also, you know, I really wanted my son to, you know, be well and go to school. And it turns out like it just wasn't in the cards for him, but he's still doing pretty well. You know, he still gets to see his kids on the weekends. We still get to see him, you know, for Thanksgiving dinner. And we're grateful for that. So I hope that's helpful. And just, you know, the journey is different for everyone. And the other thing that we can do in the community and as family members is just ask. So if you have, you know, a sibling in recovery, just ask, like, well, what would be most helpful? Or where are you right now? Or how are things going? Is there anything you want to talk about? In my family, we don't talk about much still, as I mentioned earlier, but there is the opportunity for discussion if we wanted it. And being open-minded and just kind of asking, well, where are you now? And, and then just listening as opposed to interjecting your own views about, well, that's really good, but why don't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? Just kind of listening to understand where that person is right now. And we haven't even really gotten into talking about the stigma and shame that goes along with all of this and how it can particularly impact people in recovery, particularly when unexpected and really difficult things happen that knock them off balance that can make it feel too difficult or too shameful to ask for help, you know, because they quote unquote fell off the wagon or they messed up again. And it's just too painful to face their loved ones or, or the people that they hope will love them. And it can be so complicated. So, um, you know, let's dive into that. So, you know, the shame that people feel who are living in addiction, the shame that family members feel when that's happening in their family, and even, you know, that shame that carries on into recovery, which in my mind is one of the most horrible things, you know, where a person has done the work and gotten well and is living in recovery, whatever recovery means for that person, to still live with the shame of what happened to them earlier, you know, it's unbearably sad because, you know, we all have tough things that happen to us. And when we overcome them, we should rejoice in that. So we do know both from research, but also, you know, anybody who's had a substance use problem will tell you that shame is what keeps them from asking for help. And when you don't ask for help, you burrow yourself further into isolation and you get closer to a community of people who will accept you, which is probably drug users and people who are drinking. And so shame, while it may seem like, oh, it's an emotion, kind of get over it, it actually can kill a person. It can be deadly to people. And as I mentioned with the earlier, you know, just talking about the drug supply, because the drug supply is so potent now with opioids, you know, when a person feels shame, and particularly if there was sort of a return to use after a period of not using, it can be deadly. You know, those opioids, when you use them after you haven't used for a while, they can cause a fatal overdose. And so the stakes are high. The stakes are very high when it comes to shame and stigma. And so, you know, we talk about shame, which is sort of what's supposed to happen at the individual level, and then stigma, which is sort of built into our institutions, which discriminate against people with substance use disorder, you know, where we arrest people when they're sick, as opposed to giving them help and support. And being arrested and going to jail when you have an opioid use disorder is about the least helpful thing imaginable. And so there are these different areas in our culture where we reinforce the shame that an individual feels. And it happens everywhere. 
you know, people tell me that healthcare providers, for example, some have been so helpful and others have been very stigmatizing about the condition. So we all bear some responsibility there. And in families, I think I mentioned in my family, you know, the shame just kept us from talking about anything. And, you know, at broader levels within institutions where we do discriminate against people who are in recovery from substance use disorder or for people who are actively using. And so, you know, there are lots of different things that we could talk about when it comes to stigma and shame. But for like the very first step for all of us is to take a moment or many moments and look inside at our own attitudes towards people who use drugs and our own experiences with people who use drugs which, you know, if it was someone in our family, it's probably a pretty negative experience and that that colors the way we look at addiction generally, but then it colors the way we look at recovery as well and may make it harder for us to support a person who's working hard, trying to get better. And our attitudes of shaming them are only going to make it more difficult for them to get well. Yeah. And it occurred to me that many of us you know, when we're facing the people that we love and seeing them not doing well, that it can actually bring up very uncomfortable feelings like powerlessness and shame in us. And if we're not able to sit with those difficult emotions, it can cause us to push those people away and reject or even punish them when they actually need us the most. I think that's very insightful. And I think, you know, one of the hardest things to do generally is to look inside yourself very honestly. Pretty easy to point fingers at somebody else when you just don't want to be dealing with your own pain or your own negative attitudes that you wish you didn't have. But when you're being truthful with yourself, actually, you do have those. And, you know, realizing that we need to become educated about the condition of addiction and recovery. And, you know, becoming educated actually is a good first step to kind of exploring those feelings and understanding your own emotions and not projecting them onto somebody else is so important. And then, of course, once we can begin to work with that, recognizing the incredible importance and the healing power of love and connection and, of course, forgiveness in the whole recovery process for people on all sides of it. And this is the thing, you know, you asked me at the very beginning what drew me to this. And for me, when people in recovery would tell me their story so openly and so frankly, and I'm thinking in particular about young people who are my kids' age. So these were people in their 20s who were so open about the harm that they caused, but also about the love that they felt sometimes throughout their use and how important that was. It was so moving for me to understand for all of us, you know, just the healing power of love, even if it's not like the result isn't perhaps what you want, you know, you're a mom and your son is using heroin, but that enduring love that the son knows is there and feels is there, the connection is still there. Those stories of that love are so incredibly powerful. And for people who don't have that in their own families, they may have friends, or sometimes they find that love that they just desperately need that helps them heal, you know, in a community of people in recovery. And we haven't even gotten to tell any stories. Is there a particular story that you think would be valuable and appropriate to tell at this point? Yes, there is. And there are many, but I would like to read a story by a woman whose name is Sarah, and she's told her story publicly many times, so I feel comfortable doing this. 
where she is writing about love and healing and just kind of what recovery is. So I'll just read this from the book. So on the anniversary of her 13th year in recovery from opioid use disorder, Sarah, now a healthy mother of three, wife and ordained interfaith minister, wrote on her Facebook page, the number of years really could be many years more if I looked at my recovery according to the SAMHSA definition. So SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And that definition is, so recovery is a process of change through which individuals improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. So Sarah writes, when I look back over my journey, I can see that I was engaged in a meaningful process of change for years before I was able to stop using drugs. This is often the case for healing from addiction. It takes time and it happens incrementally. This evolving process of change can completely transform one's life and is cause for celebration every step of the way. It's normal to be ambivalent in the beginning and at many times throughout the journey. It's normal to know you need to change but not yet know how to make the changes. It's normal to be scared. We need to see every step that someone makes in the direction of healing as beautiful, important, and meaningful instead of constantly telling people they aren't doing it right. We need to consistently reflect people's inherent goodness and inner strength back to them instead of compounding shame. Shame is what keeps us sick and shame is what kills us. Today, I'm honoring the work I've done to get to this place. I'm honoring the work my family has done to heal and to love me through my sickness. Most importantly, on my heart today is remembering all of those who have lost their lives to the disease of addiction and asking the universe to keep supporting me so that I may continue to support others. I am celebrating the journey thus far and intensely aware that we have much more work to do collectively if we want to help others find their way through the darkness of active addiction. So how can people find out more about the options available for people on all sides of these issues? Well, my hope is that Recovery Allies does that. And so the book is written very intentionally with no political bent and no preference for one pathway over another. And that, I think, is something that's a bit unique about the book because so many how-tos for people who are seeking recovery or for family members are geared towards a particular type of pathway or particular counseling modality. So there's the book. And the book has, at the end of each chapter, very concrete things that individuals can do to support people in recovery. If people are a little more nerdy like I am and are interested in research topics where they have a particular curiosity, there is a wonderful website, recoveryanswers.org, which is a place where recovery research is uploaded. And it's, again, it's for people who are nerdy, but also for family members. You know, there are sections based on topic. There are sections that are in layperson's language about housing, about health, about peer support, about all of those things in the recovery community that are important for getting better. And I would say that certainly online, there's a lot of information. I would express caution about looking online. There is misinformation online as well as good information. Well, Allison, it's been wonderful to talk with you about this highly complex subject. 
Well, thank you so much, Tonio. It's been wonderful for me as well. And I welcome your comments. I welcome listeners' comments. I'd love to engage in conversations about this topic. I care about it because it's just so, it's a pervasive issue in our culture. It's one that should not be shameful. And, you know, I found so much heart in the recovery community myself. I would really love to share that. And how can they get in touch with you then? So I have a website, which is all one word, allisonjonesweb.com, and people can email me from the site, and I would love to hear from you. My guest has been Allison Jones Webb. She's the author of this wonderful book that we've been talking about, Recovery Allies, How to Support Addiction Recovery and Build Recovery-Friendly Communities. Allison, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you all so much for listening. And if you missed any of this show or would like to hear it again or you would like to share it with somebody, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.